All right. Our gospel reading this morning comes from John chapter 20, verses 24 through 31. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Our sermon reading comes from 1 John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Barrett. Let us pray. Gracious God, we ask that the words of my mouth the meditation, the thoughts of our hearts together would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, our strength and our Redeemer. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would be faithful to your promises, as you always are, to be present with us and for us, to give us what we need by your grace. We ask for it now, and we ask in Jesus' name, amen. That clock is way back there. So if I go way long, it's because I can't read the clock. 
I apologize in advance. Uh, St. Jerome, uh, who is one of the great church fathers, translated uh, the Bible from the original languages into Latin first. In the fourth century, St. Jerome tells a story of blessed John the Evangelist. He called him uh, John who wrote the gospel, John who wrote this letter, uh, John the disciple whom Jesus loved. Blessed John the Evangelist, in extreme old age in Ephesus. He used to be carried into the congregation, St. Jerome tells us, in the arms of his disciples, and one was unable to say anything except this, little children love one another. At last, wearied that he always spoke the same words, they asked, Master, why do you always say this? Because, he replied, it is the Lord's command, and if this only is done, it is enough. It is the Lord's command, and if this only is done, it is enough. I'm noticing that there's some kids here, and I'm so glad that you're with us and you're listening to God's word. Can you imagine, kids, if you were there at that church in the fourth century, it would have been probably a little church, not the fourth century, sorry, Jerome told the story in the first century. In the first century, just probably 60 years after Jesus died and was raised, and there's a little church, and it's probably meeting in somebody's home, and you're there with your family and your church family, and you see your pastor, John, and here he comes again. He's got white hair. He's being carried in by one of the elders. He's so small and frail, and you know what's going to happen. He's going to come right into the middle of the worship service, and then he's going to whisper. And because you're quick and you're small, you get right underneath all the adults, and you get right up into the center, right next to him, and so you can hear what your pastor John is going to say. And you also know what he's going to say, because he says it every single Sunday, but you listen anyway. You listen, and he says it. Little children love one another. Little children love one another. And so you go home and you ask your parents, Mom, Dad, is Pastor John, like, is he going a little bit crazy? Because he keeps saying the same things over and over and over again. And you've heard people in the church and they're saying the same thing. Is he going crazy? He just keeps saying the same thing. He was with Jesus for crying out loud. Can't we get a little bit more from Pastor John? But your mom is wise. And she says, no, sweetie, he's not going crazy. He just wants you to know what's most important. And so he's going to tell you over and over and over again. I think maybe John the disciple of Jesus, had mercy on his congregation. And so he gave them this letter, 1 John, to flesh out his first things first answer, to give a little more detail of what is at the center of a life of following Jesus. We're going to take five weeks this summer uh, to preach a sermon series that we're calling So That You May Know, Confident Discipleship for the Long Haul. Confident Disciple for the long haul. Discipleship is simply following Jesus. And so we're going to ask the question together, what are the core characteristic aspects of a life that is lived following Jesus? Whether you're beginning a life of faith with Jesus, whether you're sort of ramping up into the sweet spot, whether like John, you've accrued the wisdom of years, it doesn't matter. Are there 
characteristic ways to follow Jesus in this world well, whether beginning or the end, regardless of the circumstances of your life. Everybody sitting in this room has different circumstances that they're living in. Some of you just had a baby. Some of us are just moving to a new city. Some of you students may be transitioning from an elementary school to a middle school or from a middle school to a high school. Some of us may have fresh joys. Some of us may have fresh sorrows. What are the characteristic ways to follow Jesus from beginning to end in good or bad, regardless of the circumstances? Another way to ask the question might be this. What are the key rhythms of response to God's grace? What are the key rhythms of response to God's grace, and how can we take them up together? We have a great guide helping us answer that question. Who better to answer the question, what does discipleship look like, than John, the disciple whom Jesus loved? John literally was the very first to follow Jesus, one of the first three. He was the disciple of Jesus who lived and walked most closely with Jesus in his earthly ministry for three years. And John went on to pastor a congregation for decade upon decade upon decade living and experiencing the reality that there are ways to follow Jesus that are true when Jesus first says, follow me, until with your last breath you encourage a congregation to love one another. This congregation in Ephesus, in modern-day Turkey, is asking this very question, what does it look like to follow Jesus well and to have confidence that we are following Jesus well and that we are right with God in the meantime? They're asking the question because uh, we learn in the letter that some have gone out from among them and are starting to teach some different things about what life with Jesus might look like. In fact, they're teaching that you can have life with God without Jesus. You don't necessarily have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, they would say. You don't necessarily have to believe that Jesus is God who has taken on human flesh, they would say. You don't necessarily have to live an obedient life they would say. You definitely don't have to live life together with other messy people, they would say. If you want to live well with God, you just need to have some secret spiritual knowledge. And guess what? We can tell you about that. And so John's little congregation is saying, John, help us to know what it looks like to follow Jesus well. Help us to have confidence in that as well. And so John says, little children love one another, but he doesn't just say that. In this letter, he gives what I've found to be at least five key rhythms of a life of discipleship for the long haul. And this is going to be the subject of our sermon series together. Believing in Jesus, obeying, and therein finding assurance, battling sin, loving one another, and abiding in Christ. Believing in Jesus, obeying and therein finding assurance, battling sin, loving one another, and abiding in Christ. One more thing, and then we're going to jump into believing in Jesus. John's not a crazy old man. 
when he writes this letter. But John does teach like a poet. I have a book on my shelf. It's been on my shelf for three years. It's written by Christian Wyman, and it's called Once in the West, and it's a book of poetry. And it's been on my shelf for three years because it's taken me three years to even begin to understand what in the world he's talking about because I don't have a poet's heart and I don't have a poet's mind. If you're, is it right-brained that would respond well to poetry or left-brained? Help me out. Right-brained? If you're right-brained and you're a poet and you're an artist, John is going to be a fantastic guide. If you're more of a linear thinker like me, you know what? Give yourself Give yourself to this book. John writes like a poet. In other words, he takes these themes and he weaves them in and out throughout this letter. It's not linear. He's not writing like the Apostle Paul. He doesn't craft an argument that you can follow A plus B equals C. He doesn't give a narrative that you can track. He gives you these themes, these heartbeats of a life with Jesus, and he weaves them throughout. And so the only way that I know to tackle this book as a preacher is to just go a chapter at a time, and we're going to take a theme at a time. But know that that's not how John's writing. So here's my encouragement. Here is our application for the sermon series in total. As we go throughout these five weeks of digging into this book together, let me encourage you, in your time with God and reading the Bible, maybe in your parish group, maybe if you have a friend that you could regularly get coffee with, read 1 John. Read it as it's written. Uh, Every once in a while, take a half an hour and block it out and read the entire letter and then do that again and do that again and pray that God would teach you in the way that John writes, not just in the way that we're going to receive a sermon. I also want you to know that because we're going to take a chapter at a time, and we're going to address a theme at a time. And so there may be some aspects of what you've read that you're excited to get to, and I don't talk about it because we're focusing on one particular theme. It's coming. Know that it's coming. We're going to cover it all over the course of the five weeks. This morning, we're going to focus in on just these first few verses of chapter one, verses one through four. I know that's a long introduction, but we're just getting started together. Friends, uh, the first rhythm of a life of discipleship for the long haul is believing, is believing in Jesus. Now, to live as a follower of Jesus is to live a life of believing, whether that's at the very beginning, the entrance into your life with God through faith in Jesus, or whether you're at the end, it doesn't matter. Whether times are good or hard, it doesn't matter. A regular characteristic consistent rhythm of life with Jesus is a life of believing. And John tells us this. He says that there's a word of life. Did you hear that? There's a message. There's a gospel of life. And John had the privilege of seeing it and feeling it and touching it and knowing it. And so he's going to testify to it and he's going to proclaim it. If somebody proclaims something to you, they want you to believe. John's inviting you into the practice of believing. And this shouldn't surprise you that one of the regular rhythms of the Christian life is believing. 
I'm a pastor, and that means that every once in a while, I have a conversation that I know is going to go a particular direction. I might be at the airport, or I might be uh, coaching out on the soccer field, I might be at a coffee shop, and I have a conversation with somebody who I don't know, and we're getting to know one another, and you know the question is coming, right? What do you do? And so I get to say, well, I'm a pastor of a church here in Marin County. Now I get to say, I'm a pastor of a church here in Austin, Texas. And oftentimes, the conversation goes something like this. Oh, 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 okay, that's cool. That, oh, yeah, like my Aunt Susie, I think she's Methodist. Like, that's Christian, right? Okay, Christian, like pastor. Right, so you guys believe fill in the blank. And who knows, right? Use your imagination. The sky's the limit. It's usually some kind of moral teaching that they think the Bible teaches that they disagree with or whatever it might be. You believe fill in the blank. And you know what? They're not wrong. They're not wrong to think that a characteristic part of a life as a follower of Jesus is believing. They may be wrong about what they think Christians believe, but they're not wrong that Christians believe, and we do believe truths, right? God has revealed himself in a true way so that we can know him, and we do believe true things about who God is. We believe true things about who we are. We believe true things about our relationship with God, what it means to be a human being made in God's image, trying to live well in this world that he's gifted us. We believe true things about what's gone wrong. We believe true things about how God is fixing what went wrong. We believe true things about where we're heading with God, about what makes a meaningful life, all sorts of things that followers of Jesus believe. And that's all true, but it just doesn't quite tell the whole story. See, what does John say? He doesn't invite you to believe something. He invites you and he invites me to believe in someone. Doesn't he? He says there's a message, there's a gospel of life, and that life is a person. Did you catch that? Look again with me. That which was from the beginning... We've heard, we've seen, we've looked upon, we've touched. It concerns the word of life, and that life was made known, and we've seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and made known to us. He's not talking about a message of truth. He's talking about a person of truth. He's talking about Jesus. For John, believing always has Jesus as its object. And he's not concerned here to tell us exactly the nature of believing. He wants to tell us exactly the nature of the one in whom we are to believe. Friends, when it comes to believing, the object of our belief is a person. And we are invited to believe in that person. We're invited to believe in Jesus Every time John talks about believing, he talks about Jesus. 
every time. Barrett read from John's Gospel, chapter 20, when Jesus appears to his disciples, having died and been raised to new life, Jesus appears, and Thomas doesn't believe. And Jesus says, stop disbelieving and believe in me. This person standing in front of you, Thomas, believe in me. He goes on to summarize the entire gospel by saying that these things are written to you that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. Every time John talks about believing, he talks about Jesus. Remember, he writes like a poet, and so he comes back around and again to believing all throughout this letter of 1 John. And when he talks about believing, he talks about Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 23, he says, This is God's command that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another. Chapter 4, verse 1, don't believe every spirit, he says, only believe the spirits that confess what? That Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Chapter 4, verse 14, whoever confesses their belief that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in them. Chapter 5, verse 1, everyone who believes, what? That Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Chapter 5, verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Chapter 5, verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God, excuse me, the Son of God has the testimony of God's Spirit in them. Every time John talks about believing, he talks about Jesus. Jesus is the true object of of our faith. Two things about Jesus that we can know here in these first few verses. We're believing in the one who has been manifested to us. Jesus is the one who has come and we're believing in the one who brings life. We're believing in the one who has come and been made known and we're believing in the one who brings life. Have you ever had an experience? Maybe it's an experience as you are listening to a sermon about Jesus. Maybe it's an experience that you've had in a Sunday school classroom when your teacher is teaching you about Jesus. Maybe it's an experience that you've had as you've encountered a follower of Jesus who is living in such a gracious, loving way that you know it can only be Jesus in them. And in that experience, you are overwhelmed by the sense that Jesus is the realest real and he's the truest true. Have you ever had that experience? That you know that Jesus is the realest real and he's the truest true. That's what John is trying to convey in the beginning of this letter. He doesn't start out talking about believing. He starts out talking about Jesus. He's the one who was from the beginning. Wrap your mind around that for a moment. He's the one who was with God from the beginning. And yet, he's real. He's true. He's not the personification of an ideal. He's not the face of a religious system. He's a person. He is God who has come. And John wants you to know that he's real. 
We saw him. He walked down that road. He walked right by us, and he turned and he looked at us right in the eye, and he said, follow me. We heard him say, follow me. And we ate fish with him, and we bunked with him, and we traveled with him, and we gazed upon his life, John says. We watched him. And he's the realest real, and he's the truest true. And here's the implication for us, friends. Just like John can't not talk about Jesus when he talks about believing. Just as John, when he wants to convey what is the central rhythms of life as a follower of Jesus, he can't not talk about Jesus. Friends, at Grace and Peace, you're going to hear about Jesus over and over and over and over again. We are going to seek to make Jesus the center of everything we do as a congregation. We're going to worship Jesus. We're going to seek after Jesus in our relationships. We're going to order the whole rhythm of our life together around Jesus because we're going to seek to find him day after day, week after week, regardless of the circumstances of our lives, regardless of whether we're just starting or finishing up, we're seeking to find him as the truest object of our believing here at Grace and Peace. Here's the other implication. I'll tell you a story to try and uh, get at this. My brother used to live in uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, My brother's name is Robbie Sweet. There's somebody who lives in Chattanooga named John Sweet. And so when I would go to visit my brother and I would be out at a coffee shop trying to get some work done uh, and somebody would come up and introduce themselves, when I said, I'm John Sweet, they would say, oh, you're the guy who runs the bakery around the corner. And I would say, nope, nope. I've, I've heard that he exists, but that's not me. I'm John Sweet, Robbie Sweet's my brother. Oh, Robbie, we love Robbie. Okay, you're that John, right? Wouldn't it be so incredibly rude and strange if when I tell that person that I'm not John Sweet, the baker who works around the corner, they say, oh, no, no, you are. You are that John Sweet. You're the baker. No, I'm not. I'm John Sweet, Robbie's brother. No, 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 no. No, you're not Robbie's brother. You're the baker. I need you to be John Sweet, the baker. Like, that doesn't even make sense. And no, like, I'm telling you who I am. No, you're not. So strange, right? But don't we do that with Jesus? Jesus is the realest real and the truest true. He's been revealed. He's been made known to us. He's telling us who he is, and yet so often as his followers, we say, yes, I believe in you, Jesus, as long as you're the Jesus who agrees with me on this or that, as long as you're the Jesus who doesn't meddle in this part of my life because that's hands off for you, Jesus, as long as you're the Jesus who affirms what I affirm, who loves what I love, who hates what I hate, and gets me what I need, yes, I believe in, in you, that Jesus. And we don't say it so blatantly, but don't we live that way? So often, friends, Jesus, the true object of our believing, is the one who has been made known. And we're invited to take him on his own terms. It's the only polite thing to do with a person, is it not? 
And of course, it's the best thing to do. We don't need Jesus crafted in our image because we know that believing in ourselves doesn't lead to the kind of life that we're longing to live. That's why we're believing in Jesus in the first place. Jesus is the one who has been revealed. Jesus is the one who brings life. John says that the life has been made known. The eternal life has taken on flesh and is embodied in a person. And that could throw us off. Have you ever thought about that? That John says that Jesus is the personification. He's the embodiment of eternal life. And so if we think of eternal life as code for we get to go to heaven when we die and we live forever, that's just a strange way to talk about Jesus. He's the embodiment of going to heaven when we die and living forever. That's true, but it's not the whole story. When John talks about Jesus being the embodiment of eternal life, what he's saying is the life of the age to come. The life of God's age to come, which yes, is eternal, absolutely. It will not end. But it's so much more than just perpetual living. He's talking about the life of the age to come. The life when God will make all things new. The life when God restores our right relationship with him and with one another and with our world. Jesus says in his prayer that it's what happens when God's kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven and God's will is done perfectly. That's the life that Jesus embodies. Full and fulfilling life. The life that we were made for. The life that we long for. The life that in Jesus we will one day have has been embodied in a person and crashed into our present in the person of Jesus. Right? That life has arrived for us. And through believing in Jesus, we can start to taste of that life right now. We can start to live that life right now. Jesus is the object of our believing as the one who brings life. And maybe this comes as a challenge to you as it does to me. Because as a follower of Jesus, I profess that I'm a believing in Jesus follower. And what I mean when I say I believe in Jesus is that I find Jesus to be the true center of my life. I find him to be load-bearing for me. I find him to be the true source of life and forgiveness and purpose and meaning and everything that I need. That's what I'm confessing with my mouth, and yet with my life, what do I do? Well, I find other things that become my object of believing because I make them load-bearing to find life and meaning and significance. Can you relate to that? Yes, I profess with my mouth that I'm a believer in Jesus, and yet what I look to to bring me life is your approval when I preach my first sermon the new job that I have, the new city in which I live, my ability to maintain my health, the way that you laugh when I make a joke, whatever it might be. Friends, we look elsewhere when the true object of believing is right in front of us, the one who brings life. Friends, John doesn't want you just to believe. He wants you to believe in 
Jesus. And so what might that look like for us as a congregation? Uh, friends, if you've never begun a life of believing in Jesus, what it looks like is starting. What it looks like if you're resonating right now with who Jesus is proclaiming himself to be for you. The one who has come and lived and died and been raised for your forgiveness and for your life with God. If that is the life that you want, then receive him. Then believe. Tell him, yes, Jesus, you are who you claim to be and I want to know you more and I need you to be for me who you are and get started. But friends, believing doesn't begin and end as an entrance into a life of discipleship. Believing is a regular rhythm of a life of discipleship. What does it mean to continue to believe in Jesus as we follow him? Well, we can say this, and I think you would agree, that believing in a person is different than believing a fact. What does it mean to believe in a person? When Kathy and I were dating, I would say to my friends, she's the one. Have you ever said that? And I believe that she's the one. And I acted on that belief by marrying her, but that didn't end my believing that she's the one, did it? I spend the rest of my life living into this relationship with Kathy, who is the one. It's an act of continuing belief that she is the one. What does it look like for us to continue to believe that Jesus is the one for us? Let me just get, excuse me again, give you one practical application and we'll close. Uh, believe that Jesus is the one by cultivating a relationship with him in which you get to know him for who he is, right? Cultivating a relationship with him by getting to know him for who he is. And the way that we're invited to do that is to take up John's testimony and the testimony of the apostles who saw him and touched him and walked with him. And as much as we would love to have been John then, we are here now. And John says, you can know him truly because we've testified to him. And so what I'm saying is read your Bible and let's read our Bibles together. Not because it's a Christian thing to do, not because we're looking for things to believe necessarily, although we do, but because it's a labor of love in which we are believing in the one who is revealed in the Bible. We're getting to know Jesus, the true object of our belief, who has been made known as the one who brings life. We're getting to know him, coming to love him, giving our lives to him, as we read the Bible today. So much more, so much more to say. But friends, we're invited in. We're invited in to a life of believing, whether it's your first rhythm or your last or somewhere in between. Do you know Jesus as the true object of our belief? Let's continue to believe together. Let's pray. Uh, 
Jesus, we need your help. We need your help to know you. We need your help because some of us are filled with doubts. Some of us feel far from you. Some of us are on the outside of a relationship with you, looking in, wondering what it might be like to know you. And so would you reveal yourself to us this morning so that we might believe. We ask it in your name. Amen.